Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. guys welcome to the podcast that believes garrett was the number one guy all along that's right i knew it i knew it all along this is the pack filler podcast i'm pat bulger hi everybody i know it's been a while right how you doing you holding up tour withdrawal i know i know what it's like i'm going through it myself we all just gotta buckle down and hold on together tour spain's right around the corner you never know. We might make it. Oh, man. What a tour it was this year, right, you guys? Oh, man. Anyway, I'm in the studio, and here we are back. It's been a, it's been a little bit of time. Usually I've been doing those, those daily tour updates, but there are so many really good quality daily tour updates that the last thing you probably need to hear was me just making shit up to kind of fill in a, a podcast for the day. If you listen to any of last year's daily tour updates, you'll know what I'm talking about unless you heard some of the good ones, for example, where I had George Mount on or Paul Main was on, or things like that, where we had somebody who actually had something to contribute to the conversation. And, and you, the next thing, last thing you need from me is, is attempting to be like a real sports journalist, um, providing you with that inside information and stuff like that. So, so we didn't do daily tour updates this year. But boy, what a great race it was this year, right? Equal strength in a lot of riders. I don't know if that's that they're all on the same meds or what, but everybody was riding really good. There was that one stage, in fact, where you, you, you might remember, I think it was Alpe d'Huez, where they were going up, and at one point they were all four side by side by side. That was right, unfortunately, after Nibali attacked, I think. I mean, Nibali crashed and fractured a vertebra, and that now that guy's going to do the Tour of Spain. That 
hashtag badass. But um, I'm glad Garrett Thomas did it. I, I was actually, as I, as I said, in fact, Paul and I spoke a lot about this. You remember, Paul, uh, about theories about what Sky was really intending to do and how they were probably terrified of the fact that Frumi probably wasn't going to start the tour, and so they had to have a plan B, and those guys are all about covering every single base. They're about as meticulous as any team can get, right? Whether you like them or not, you have to understand they're a super team. They're meticulous as they can get, and so they had to have somebody ready to rock, and who else to look forward to but Garen Thomas. And with Frumi doing the the Giro and all that kind of stuff and going through all he's gone through, you had to know, think in the back of your mind that the plan all along might have been to stick with Garrett Thomas. And I think it was. And I think it worked. I, and it was great. I was happy to see a guy like that win. Um, I, I was rooting for Dumoulin just because I, 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 was, I wanted somebody other than a Skyrider to win. But if a Sky jersey did end up on the top step in Paris, I wanted it to be Garrett Thomas. I'm sure a lot of us are thinking that way. I don't know why I, don't want, I didn't want Froome to win. And I'm, I'm starting to turn the tables on my opinions on that guy. Every interview, and you guys can probably bust me on this, and you're probably going to come, you know, you're probably going to fill my inbox with angry, you know, hater shit. But I have yet to see Chris Froome in an interview where he's an asshole. I've yet to see Chris Froome do anything on a bike where he's an asshole, other than the way he rides. He rides like he's a spider humping his stem, but it works. You got to admit, it's pretty damn efficient. He's probably going to go down as one of the greater Grand Tour riders of all time. And it works for him. So, and and like I said, I haven't seen him be a jerk. And the way he held himself during this tour was incredibly respectful and professional and dignified and all that kind of stuff. So, I don't know. It's If, if you get a chance, take a step back and look at Chris Froome as a human being and what he's been doing. And... um I thought the booing was a bit too much. I thought the fans along the side of the tour were way too hard on him, especially the drunk buckhead who decided to reach out and take a swing at him. And I think that might have been what took down Nibali. I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong. But the fans were out of control. And I think that's an issue that needs to come into play here is... uh, when do they when do they start placing barriers? Do they have to place barriers? Do they have to have more gendarmes? Is the tour getting... I mean, the beauty of bike racing is the fact that you can approach the heroes of the sport, and it is free to attend these events. And it's a party-like atmosphere, but when you've got a small percentage ruining it for the rest, and you've got a whole bunch of pissed-off Frenchmen booing, um, I don't know. Didn't hear those boos back in the days when Richard Veronk was doing incredibly well. Didn't hear those booings back in the days when Bernard Hinault was doing well. I'm not accusing Bernard Hinault of doping. I'm accusing Richard Veronk of doping because it's pretty much been laid to fact that he did. But he didn't hear any booing during those races. Hypocrisy much? Um, I also have to say there were too many crashes in the tour this year. I, I, but I find myself saying that almost every year. Uh, riders are flying everywhere and I don't think it has to do with the fact that you know carbon fiber bikes are too light or the I remember talking with George Mount last year saying that when riders crash the pedals separate them from the bikes and it becomes two flying projectiles I, I, I you know I think those theories are all fine and dandy 
I just think it's everybody knows that an entire career is made if you win a stage. An entire pro team's budget is made if you win a stage. And I think everybody's putting everything on the line. And that's that's where bodies are going to be flying. I don't think we're going to see a, a Tour de France that is going to be less violent in the near future until, you know, until it just becomes 23 days of time trials. I also think that the cobbles were awesome. I think, you know, do they have a place in the Grand Tour? Yeah, I think so. Not every year, but, uh, you know, you win a Grand Tour, you got to go through a bunch of shit and you got to go through, you got to show that you're the best all around at any given condition. And uh, maybe mixing cobbles with those types of, as I spoke earlier about those types of efforts where people are willing to risk anything and then you mix cobbles in on top of that and you don't have cobbled specialists riding, you know, maybe you're adding a, big, a bigger danger factor. Um, but I, I loved watching them. I don't have to ride them, but it was fun for me to watch them. I do believe after coming out of this Tour de France that um, Peter Sagan continues to be one of the most engaging and dynamic riders in the peloton. Philippe, I think, was an awesome con- addition to this year's tour. Uh, Primoz Roglic, Rog- Rog- I, one of those is right. Just pick the one that I said that's correct. Uh, I like I like his style. I think he's a great rider. Um, I think all three of those names get the joke, if you know what I mean. I like I like this new breed of riders that aren't taking everything so goddamn seriously all the time, and and they're fun to watch and they're animated and they understand that that bike racing is a form of entertainment, um, and so sometimes hamming it up a little bit for the cameras or being a little being a little extravagant, flamboyant for the crowd sells a lot of bikes and sells a lot of sponsors' products. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to be a complete schmuck up there, but you know, sometimes hamming it up a little bit is great and understanding that it is all just a joke, that we are just people pedaling our bicycles and that uh, we're, not ca- we're not curing cancer here. So uh, just go out there and have a lot of fun. It was a great, great, great tour. Um, I think there's going to be some, some major tension in Sky next year. What do you guys think? Gary Thomas isn't young. He's not the up-and-coming rider. Um, he and Froomey are pretty close in age, and I don't think Froomey's going quietly into that good night. I think next year, uh, depending on who's riding for what, is going to get really freaking interesting, and I can't wait to see where all the other top-end riders end up with teams closing, with teams collapsing, BMC becoming CCC. Uh, last I heard, Richie Port was rumored to be going to Trek Sagafredo, which could be a, a very interesting dynamic over there. So, uh, again, we can already start talking about next year. I'm almost sounding like one of those, uh, those ESPN shows, right? That never shut up about a specific sport. There you go. Pack for the podcast. Speaking of the podcast, you guys, I just got back from our first Bike Town shoot. Remember I've been talking to you guys about Pack Filler switching to a little bit of a video stuff? Of course the podcast is going to remain. Don't panic. But um, we're, we're delving a little bit into the visual medium. And our first shoot happened just recently. Um, we're calling it Bike Town. And um, no spoilers, but uh, Bend, Oregon's pretty cool. Um, 
and that was that was where our first location shot was. We just spent about three or four days there last week. Um, big thanks to producer extraordinaire here at the Backfiller Podcast, Karsten Hagen, who lives in Bend, makes it his hometown, and he made this entire thing happen. We got to ride and speak with a lot of great personalities and uh, get a feeling of what Bend is when it comes to being a cycling community. So um, I can't wait to get that one out to you guys. It's in it's in editing right now, and we'll hopefully have those episodes put up here soon. Going to travel to some more cities. If you know of of a place uh, that you think is a true cycling town, a bike town, a cycling-loving f- community, let us know, and uh, maybe we'll be able to travel over there and spend a couple days riding with you and some of the other community and get a feel of what makes your town a bike town. Speaking of Bend, Serena Bishop-Gordon. Strangely enough, a person I met in Bend, I had, I had heard of, of Serena and I had followed her career um, through you know, online methods and things like that. And strangely enough, I got to, I got to meet her when we were over in Bend at the shoot. <laughs> Funny enough, we met her on the road day. If you know who Serena is, her specialties in, in the off-road disciplines in, in mountain bike and in cyclocross. And, um, I had, I had a great discussion with her there. She's involved in the bike town episode, but I also, after speaking with her at there, I said, you know what, we should if you're cool with this, I'd love to set up a, a podcast interview. And sure enough, we were able to catch up to her. And after my arrival back in Spokane, she was still in Bend, of course, but we were able to make this happen even after some Skype snafu. I'm pretty sure on my part. So before we get to the interview, I do want to thank some sh- some. I want to thank some show sponsors. Of course, I. You know what? I want to start with these guys. Fit for Hope. Uh, fitforhope.com is the website. They even have a pack filler team. Uh, some of the some of the fans of the show have been putting together a little team about picking an objective and picking a goal in your life and um, becoming a fit for hope in ambassador to, to ch- you know not only train and and strive for what you're trying to do in your goals and your objectives, but also to do it for a cause. And uh, so go over and check them out at fitforhope.com. They just sent me a gigantic package of swag that we're going to be giving out at our live shows. So come to the live shows. We got all kinds of cool stuff from them. Great bunch of people. And uh, yeah, and there you go. And I think they're gonna, a couple of them are going to be sporting the new pack filler kits, which I just got notice are in the mail. I'm so excited. Anyway, I digress. Fitforhope.com. Also, thanks to our friends at Noon Hydration, noonlife.com, N-U-U-N-L-I-F-E.com. Oh, hydration project products galore, and I I've now put a tab in, in pretty much every water just because I'm I don't eat I don't drink uh, my my amount of water a day, but these are kind of a way to tease me and trick me into doing it, and I'm I'm loving the products, especially the energy based products, and we'll have to see how they get me through. I'm doing a big ride uh, this weekend called the Midnight Century. It's a Spokane tradition. Starts at midnight, hundred miles about 40 to 50% gravel and an ass load of climbing. And uh, I'll let you know how that one goes. Anyway, noon hydration. Also, thanks to Honey Stinger, honeystinger.com. Get over there, check out their products. Um, I'm loving my, actually, my son adores the waffles. I'm those, I can eat them for breakfast, but during a ride, they taste a little bit too breakfasty for me because they're really delicious, but they have gels. They have the gels and they have the energy chews. And I love those chews because I don't, they, they're what get me through rides. Big thanks to all of our sponsors. I'm rambling. Let's get to Serena. Should we? Let's talk to her. Pack for the podcast, Serena Bishop Gordon. (laughs) 
Right, you guys, today's guest pretty much can go fast over all terrain and all distances. She's a national champion. She rides for the Live Giant factory team. Um, she's an endurance and cyclocross specialist as well as a coach and director of the Conservation Alliance. So um, uh, that's pretty much a full plate. And she also dropped me last weekend on a road ride. So let's welcome to the show, Serena Bishop-Gordon. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you so much. Hey, I, I got to tell the listeners because they know I'm a loser. And so uh, just, you know, how much of a headache we just went through trying to make Skype work and all this kind of stuff. Here I brag about being kind of a tech guy, but not today. Well, we got it working. We did. We did. So uh, first of all, thanks thanks for... Uh, I. Listeners are going to see and hear the the first interview we did when we were all just talking about Bend last week, and once we get the the Bike Town show up and and posted and stuff like that. So first of all, I wanted to thank you for that opportunity to first of all meet you there and then and ride in that you know crappy little cycling town you guys live in. Right. Well, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time and and experiencing this place that we call home. <laughs> well, special. Yeah. Well, so in my in my little research to kind of get everything together for this interview today, I found that you have quite an interesting story about how cycling came into your life, how you kind of discovered this love of two wheels. Is that correct? That is true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a little bit late in life could, actually. <laughs> could you could you bring us up to speed on how that all came to be? Um, well, as a kid, I was always really active and then started running um, in high school, ran through college. And after that, uh, just decided I wanted to do longer distance uh, racing. So I was, I would say, an ultra runner um, when ultra running was less cool than it is now. <laughs> um, uh, and then I met my husband. We spent um, a ye- uh, half a year hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and then found ourselves in Bend. And we moved here because the backpacking was great. And uh, needless to say, we both realized that um, mountain biking seemed like a pretty fun thing to do. And uh, we don't backpack nearly as much anymore. But um, I, we moved here and I thought, okay, I'm going to keep running, get back into the groove of that. And I didn't find um, a community. And a friend of mine said, oh, you should, you should try cyclocross. I was oh, like, wow. I have no idea what that even means, but <laughs> I like you and I think you're really cool. So, okay, <laughs> tell me what to do. Um, and I borrowed a bike and uh, I went to a race and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing other than it was really fun. And there were a, there was just a great community of people. And um, so that one thing led to another. I was like, oh, I like cyclocross. Maybe I should learn how to handle a bike a little better. I'll start mountain biking. And then um, got affiliated with the Sunnyside Sports Cycling Team, which is a local shop here in Bend, and met some people that really changed my life, um, gave me bicycle disease, and really just <laughs> welcomed me into this community of, of cyclists, which um, was not part of the plan uh, for life in general. And, um, one thing led to another, I started racing more and getting better. And, uh, meanwhile, I was working, I'm working for an organization called the conservation Alliance and, um, was really torn. I loved my work with the Alliance, but also felt like I wanted more time, uh, to ride and race and, and really see where I could take my cycling. And so, um, gratefully the organization that I work for said, okay, you can work half time. So I was able to I, and I continue to work uh, half time at the Conservation Alliance and and train and ride and coach uh, the other half. Um, and that 
you know, once I had a little bit more flexibility in my schedule, that really opened up a lot more opportunities. Um, and I started riding for the live team and, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's something in your website and there's a line that I, I actually caught and I highlighted and I'm, I'm going to steal, but I'm not, I'll I'll always quote the source, I promise. But it it says less money, more more flannel and brighter spirits. (laughs) What does that line mean to you and what, and how does it still ring true? Oh, I, it's so interesting that you pulled that out because so often that's the sentence that people, um, remember from, from my writing. And that really goes back to before that, before I moved to Bend, um, when I first got out of college, I thought I wanted to be an investment baker or do, um, hostile takeovers and work in New York (laughs) city. And, um, I ended up going to work for Enron right out of college. And this was right before, um, Enron imploded or exploded or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it was a really great, experience for me because it made me realize all the things that I didn't want in my life. And it made me realize that the people that I wanted to be surrounded with were not the people that I was currently surrounded with. And, uh, from that experience, I I then worked for Adidas and then worked for Patagonia. And when I was working for Patagonia, I realized that there was this group of people that were incredibly successful in life yet their definition of success was really different than the definition that had been ingrained in me for Mm. my whole life. And they were happy and they were smiling and they liked being around one another. And I slowly became part of that culture. Um, And it made me realize that I didn't need to feel the success that I thought I needed. Success now had a different definition. And my husband and I often say enough is better and wow. I truly believe that. Like, if you have enough money, that's better. You don't need more than that. You just need enough. Uh, the size of your house or the number of your cars or whatever, like, just have enough. And then there's enough to go around. And um, I say more flannel and brighter spirits because at that time in my life, the people that brought me that joy and showed me what having a bright spirit looked like and felt like were flannel. And we still wear flannel and I have about 14 flannel shirts and not much else. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that experience in my life, although it had nothing to do with bicycles, gave me the confidence and the strength to pursue cycling in a way that I otherwise wouldn't have because no one, very few people can make a living riding bikes. Very few people are ever um, gain the success and fame that, um, the very few in cycling do, you have to do it because you love it. You have to do it because it's something in you that lights you up, excuse me. And, um, I think if it weren't for some previous life experiences, I wouldn't have had the courage to step out of say a traditional path of success and, and, and pursue my cycling, which has opened up yeah. So many avenues for me. I can, I can only imagine how um, that making those types of decisions could have been impacted upon your life and upon those around you. I mean, I just think of of the, the older generation. I don't, you know, I'm I'm probably part of that now. But you know, thinking about the hey, I'm gonna 
drop everything. I'm going to get rid of this career. I'm going to go move to Oregon and I'm going to ride and race bikes because I, I love it. Um, did you find that to be a difficult decision in terms of people you were associated with who thought you were crazy, who wanted to maybe lock you up into <laughs> some sort of a hospital? Um, so the first one of these big decisions, I was working for Patagonia, living in Portland, Oregon. I owned a home and I met my now husband, who was working for a nonprofit in the middle of nowhere, totally off the grid. And I fell head over heels for him. And um, without a lot of contemplation, I sold my house, I quit my job, and I moved out with him to Opal Creek, okay. which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And my mother was like, you are absolutely nuts. You are <laughs> crazy. You, and you didn't ask me if I approved of this decision. <laughs> when I was in my mid-20s, I certainly didn't need to ask for permission, but... Yeah. Um, like my family just thought I was totally nuts. And then I said, Oh, and so after I spend the winter here with Ben in a totally off the grid, snowed in environment, we're going to hike the Pacific crest trail. <laughs> and then they all said, well, you're going to break up. And I said, great. That's wonderful. If we break up, we'll know. Oh my God. Right. Wow, so yeah. <laughs> we didn't break up. We we've been together since 2005 um, we'll celebrate eight years of marriage and later this month. Um, and so that was like the first big step and it was super scary, but I was also in this place in my life where, like I said, I had just realized there was this community of people who did things because they were passionate about them and okay. they really did follow with, follow their hearts. So that was the first big thing. And, um, no one, you know, no one ever says, Oh, I really shouldn't have gotten up early and gone for a bike ride. You know, I, I can't say in any way like, oh, I really wish I hadn't have made that first big decision to yeah. get out of this, this framework that I thought was my life. And, uh, and so subsequent decisions, while never easy and are, and very hard, I look back to that first really big step, like out of the fold that I, in the path that I thought I was going down. And it, it really does resonate and like gives me strength to know that like you have the confidence and the courage to do something, yeah. then you will be rewarded. And maybe it will flop. Like, but you know what? I I have a community, I have a family, I have an education. Like, so you make a decision that it doesn't pan out the way you want it to pan out. Well, that's okay. Yeah. That's how we learn and grow. And there have been a lot of those missteps along the way for sure. But as a result of that, like I become a better person and um, you know, yeah. learn from that. Right on. So your resume, I'm looking over it. It's not only full, but it's full of a multitude of event styles of different types of racing. Yes, they all, <laughs> they all in some way incorporate some st sort of, sort of getting dirty, but how are you able to compete at such a high level over such very disciplines, doing these incredibly long events and then turning around and doing the bleeding out of your eyes experience that is cyclocross? I mean, two very different types of, of racing and fitness styles. Um, I think a lot of, of that goes is attributed to my coach. I've worked with the same coach since I started ride, riding bikes. He knows me really well. Um, and he does an awesome job of really metering my efforts and knowing how to prepare me. And we work together, but prepare me for events. Um, and making sure that I have the right amount of breaks and those things. But um, I think it's a good question. I can't really answer it other than <laughs> I just love riding my bike and I have a very competitive personality. And so, um, 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Is there a, no, no. Hey, you know, I guess that's, I guess that's maybe you could look at into it in some terms of, you know, you probably don't want to sit here and brag about things, but it could be, you know, just genetics. You could be just some sort of a mutant that are able to do these things, you know, and be able to have that top end speed, but also be able to grind and, and do some of those long 50 plus mile, you know, I, I saw a result in the Breck Epic, and I know how brutal that race is. <laughs> and um, to see those things, and then to see you turn around and pull in cyclocross results is just for me. You know, it's actually I'm kind of jealous to be honest because I suck at <laughs> cyclocross. But I and we'll get to that later. But if you had to choose one type of racing and one maybe you know, if, if I told you you could open a garage and pick one bike and only do that type of racing ever again, would you would you be able to do it? And what would it be? Oh, that is such a tricky question. <laughs> um, it doesn't really seem fair. Well, um, but I would, I think that at this point in my life, I would pick um, gravel racing. Really? Um, I haven't done a lot of it, but it really does combine a lot of the things that I love. Um, you get to do really great climbs, you get technical descents. There are tax, some road tactics thrown in. Um, you get to ride your cycle cross or gravel bike with pretty fat tires. Yeah. So if I could only pick one, I think that would be kind of the best of all of the things together. Um, you get to ride your cross bike, but for a long time. Um, yeah. And, and I guess to your point, like I, about being a a contender in really long races and in the cycle cross races, like there's always that balance, like, but I want to be better. Yeah. You know, like, Oh, how can I be better? But I haven't. And a lot of people decide that they want, they pick one discipline or the other. And could I have been a better cycle cross racer if I didn't race mountain bikes or vice versa? Maybe. Um, would I have been a better, could I have, could I be a better racer if I didn't have a, a job probably. <laughs> um, but I think all, all those things for me personally, it's about balance, right? Like, um, you enjoy different things at different parts of the year, different seasons, yeah. different, um, for me, it keeps things interesting and balanced. And, and I think I, I look forward to cross season for certain reasons. I look forward to mountain bike, re- mountain bike racing for yeah other reasons. What was it? You mentioned the term that I'm also going to steal from you, bicycle disease. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that. And what was it about cycling that clicked with you? you? First of all, your growth through the sport has been pretty darn quick. I mean, for somebody who hasn't been doing it for an incredibly long amount of time, although coming from an athletic background, obviously is a benefit. But what was it about cycling that clicked and made it something you're like, holy crap, this is it. This is I found that I found the activity. Oh, well, 
I think part of it is I got to spend a lot of time outdoors, which is something that I crave. Um, I had some initial success, which always helps, right? Yeah. Like, oh, God, I'm yeah. kind of good at this. Yeah. That's fun. Um, I think... I think the real root of my bicycle disease goes back to a man named Don Wheat. And he he owned Sunnyside Sports. And I went in after my first few cross races, and I thought that I was pretty hot shit because I had just won, like, the Category C whatever <laughs> race. And uh, my friend said, oh, yeah, you should talk to Don. You should join the team. I said, okay. So I went in. I was, like, really scared and nervous. And um, he's like, oh, well, you should, you can try on this kit. Uh, and it was orange and navy blue. And I'd never worn bibs before. And okay. um, anyway, yeah. but he was like, I was, so I was nervous and scared. I didn't really understand what the hell this kit thing was. And okay, I'm going to wear this. And it has pockets. What do I put in them? But he just like, took <laughs> me under his wing. And I started riding with him. And he coined the term. Well, I don't know if he coined it. But he told me the term bike disease. Okay. And he said that it's something that once you get, you never get rid of it. And <laughs> his wife does not race bikes. He's in his 60s now, and his wife has never raced bikes. And my husband doesn't race bikes. And so we had this common thing, and he's like, you just have to explain to Ben that you have bike disease, and like, there's no cure for it. And uh, <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of became kind of like this crutch, like, sorry, I'm going to go do this five-hour ride. And Ben would be like, really? You don't want to do this other thing? I'm like, sorry, I have bike disease. I got to do it. got to happen. <laughs> So. <laughs> um okay i i love that that is that's awesome um i guess i guess you've almost already answered my next question do you ever get times because mountain biking and cyclocross are two different seasons that do you ever have a tough time staying motivated to keep going from season to season to season um typically i haven't had much issue with motivation to be totally honest this year i raced cape, cape epic which is really early for um, Pacific Northwest yeah. races uh, or for Pacific Northwest ricers. Um, so I was training from the middle of November all through the winter into Cape Epic. Wow. And I would say that this spring was and, and summer has been the hardest time ever for me to stay motivated just because my season got shifted. So usually I have a break in August, late July and August, but instead I just keep racing and I keep training and, and, uh, that break that I would normally get should have happened in like May or June. If you move the whole calendar backwards a little bit. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so typically no, I mean, I, I, I love the process. I love racing, but I also love the process of training. I love, um, seeing improvements as incremental as they are. I love working on skills and testing myself and, and riding with my friends that are faster or stronger than me. Um, so the whole, the whole process of, of racing and training is, uh, is a, is a huge part of why I like the sport. You, you talked about your friends. Is, is it a local group that you primarily train with, or do you find yourself having to do a lot of stuff solo when you're training? Um, I think it's a combination. I do a lot of my structured training solo. Yeah. Um, but we have a really good group on Tuesday nights. I think you actually were able oh. to participate in the Tuesday night ride. I didn't participate. I watched <laughs> them ride away. Uh, so every Tuesday night, uh, except for the winter time, we have a ride. Um, it's about 32 miles or something like that. Yeah. And it takes about an, 
just under an hour and a half. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's harder than any road race I've ever done. And it's, it's awesome. It's really, really fun. Um, there's no consequence. So if you get dropped, there's no big deal. So you can go as hard as you want and see how long you can hang on. And the first time you finish that ride is with the front groups, pretty, pretty awesome. But so there's that great, um, ride. And then we have some local races, a crit series and a time trial series that are awesome. Um, but then as far as, uh, mountain biking, I have a group of really amazing friends in town that I ride with. Uh, it just kind of depends. We all race. So it's like, okay, how do we finagle our schedules that we all have our long ride on the same day or things like that. Um, and then in the winter we have a group of people that does a lot of quote unquote adventure racing or adventure riding. So, um, pull it, putting together sort of gravel and asphalt rides, uh, that, you know, cross bikes are, are required for and, and going out for some long winter training rides is always fun. Okay. So I'm, and by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to touch base on a subject here. And if you don't want to answer, you don't have to, or something like that. I don't necessarily want to start a, a, you know, any kind of a gender battle here, but a rider with, (laughs) with your resume, if male would be making a good living racing. Um, you, you talked about the fact that you have to work part-time and there are only so many people who can really make a living at, at bike racing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and again, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but is it, is it possible in your opinion to race as a pro and earn a proper living? Um, there are a few people, the very top of the sport females that can do that. Um, when you say proper living, I think, I don't think there are very many women, um, that can not have another source of income and, 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 and whether that be from a spouse, um, part-time job, family support, um, you know, the, the, there are a lot of race promoters that are doing a great job, you know, equal payout in the United States is pretty much a given, but even if you were to win the Epic ride series, which is a four, race mountain bike series, um, which is the highest paying series in the country, that's not going to support you for very long. It certainly isn't going to support travel and, and, um, equipment and a lot. And, and of course, like you're in a lot of situations, your team um, pays for those things, but, yeah. um, it's difficult for sure. Uh, and like I said, there are f- a few people that can do it, but um, not many, uh, I feel incredibly fortunate to have the support that I do with the live team and, um, and be able to do this thing that I love as, as part of my job and as part of my income and and part of, of sustaining this hobby that has turned into more than that. Um, I think that in the United States, we are making strides, uh, towards equality in regards to the racing, but, and, and race, uh, prize purses. Um, but it is difficult. And I think, I think sponsors need to be looking at the full picture of someone's life, because if you can, if you can give people the support they need financially, where they don't have to rate, they don't have to work, they're going to race better. They're going to race faster. They're going to be, have more energy to put into training and recovery. And, you know, we only are capable of a hundred percent, right. And it's how yeah. you split that hundred percent up. And if you can give 88% to racing and recovery and training, 
then you're going to perform better than if you can only do 40%. Um, so I don't have a solution for yeah. it, but I do think that it's an important topic. Um, I think it's almost worse on the roadside. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I have, I have friends who have stood on national championship podiums who are making $6,000 a year Oh God! and they're traveling and racing exponentially more than any of the mountain bikers. Um, it's, it's, it's like, it's asinine what is asked of them and what they're compensated for. Um, but do you want to race yeah. is the question, right? And the answer is yes. So then you do it for free because that's what you want to do. Um, is there something that can change? I mean, other than, you know, teams magically waving a magic wand and saying everybody gets a sustainable wage, um, is there a, I don't know. I mean, what, where do we, <laughs> how do we make it all better? Yeah. I mean, I, that's a very big question and I have, I have opinions on it, but I think, yeah. um, for instance, the United States government doesn't support cycling in any way. We have USA cycling and they do give some financial support to racers, but that is in no way affiliated with our government. And you look at other, com- other countries and they support different sports. They support yeah. athletics. They tr- make it feasible. They invest in their, in their athletes in a way that their athletes can commit 100%. And again, it's not a huge number, but it's more than here. And I'm not saying that the United States government needs to give bike racers money, but I think we need as a, as a culture in this country, if we want to promote sports like cycling, they need to get, they just need to have more financial support. And it starts at the beginning, right? Like we yeah. don't, we, NICA is just starting um, the National Inter- Interscholastic Cycling yeah. Association. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, they're starting to get mountain bike racing in high schools, but I didn't know that racing, of bike racing of any sort was even a thing until my late 20s. Like I didn't even, I didn't know. You used a bicycle to like go to your friend's house. Yeah. Um, and so starting it at a young age, making it a popular and sexy sport, just like football or basketball, um, you know, basketball players, I would imagine one professional basketball player's salary is more than all U.S. men and women professional cyclists make in a year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, that is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so the the more we can, we can support young cyclists, that obviously raises the bar and, and raises the interest of, of companies and sponsors. But in order to make cycling sustainable, I don't know the answer to it. It's, it's, uh, it's tough. We don't, we don't sell tickets to admission for admission yeah. for spectating right? It's, we don't play in an arena or a stadium. Um, and that makes it hard. Yeah. Is there anybody you see who has the vision or who's doing it right? You know, I, you know, I know you're working, you work with your individual sponsors and stuff like that, but is there anybody you see out there who's, who's trying to figure it out? You mean like teams or companies? Yeah. Anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Or, or even races, yeah. you know, or something like that. Yeah. Well, I would say that one of the companies that has done a great job for, for women specifically is, is Cliff, Cliff Bar. You know, they had the Luna team for a long time and now they've rolled that into the Cliff team. Yeah. But they're not only their support of women in cycling, but their long-term commitment to their athletes is phenomenal. Um, they invest in the person and if the results are there, 
awesome, all the better. But, you know, they really invest in, in, in the cyclists as ambassadors of the sport, as role models, and as part of their overall marketing strategy. Um, and they also win a lot of races, which helps, of course. But, but it's really about creating um, a culture with, within the marketing team and with the, within the brand to, to showcase what women can do and, and, and that balance between being female and being strong and, and, and just having a commitment to those women for the long term. I don't know what the ins and outs of their contracts look like, but I, have, I am friends with a number of women who have raced on the Cliff team or sponsored by Cliff, um, professional triathletes and whatnot. And uh, they're in it for the long, the long haul, which makes a huge difference. And, you know, the, the live and the giant factory team, you know, the live side of it is growing. Um, it's still small, but, but one of the things that I am in continually impressed with on our team is again, that personal investment. It's not about your latest result. It's really about you as a person wow. and you as an ambassador of the sport. And, um, I have some friends on, on the team who have only ever ridden for giant, really, um, which is pretty impressive. Their entire careers, they've been, they've been on giant and, uh, and, and that's on the, on the male side. But, um, as, as live grows, it's still a relatively young brand. Um, I can see that same model being used on that side of the equation. Okay. You, you talk about some of these companies doing things and um, your work with the Conservation Alliance, does this kind of tie in? Does it become, do you become kind of this, you know, does the, does the writing kind of tie into potential work with that organization? Um, you know, a lot of the, so the Conservation Alliance is made up of companies yeah. uh, who all contribute money into a central fund and then that money is granted to nonprofit organizations doing um, permanent land and water protection in North America. Okay. Um, so a lot of the brands that I work with at the Conservation Alliance are also brands that are involved in the cycling community. And that synergy is really awesome. Yeah. It's nice that there's um, crossover there. Um, but I feel like it's, pr I keep it pretty separate. Okay. Um, I mean, there are, there are some situations where I talk to the same people for both cycling and for, for conservation alliance work, but, uh, yeah, I try to keep it pretty separate. Okay. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't hurt to have a, you know, a pretty good email list or something like that or first names or somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I, that's true. So talk, talk to me about your, also you work as a coach. I do. Tell me about, uh, what, what that kind of involves, what kind of athletes you work with and things like that. Yeah, so I've been coaching uh, for about three years, um, and my athletes uh, vary as far as their disciplines, but um, I would say the majority of them mountain bike or and and or race cycle cross. A few are road racers, um, and so yeah, so I, I basically write training plans. I work with them on what their goals are and how we can work together to achieve them. Um, most of the work that I do with my clients is on the phone and online, but I do have a couple of clients that live here in Bend and uh, those relationships are really special. So yeah, it's really about how, you know, so many of, of us 
have complicated and, and, and complex and full plates and, and lives. And so how, as a coach, can I best uh, write a plan and put together a program that they can move forward in their cycling goals, but also be well balanced in the commitments they have in the rest of their lives. Yeah. So when I talk to a new client, one of the things that I say is like, if you're happy in your life, then you're going to go faster on your bike. And it's really about balance for it, it, for me as an individual, but also as I coach. And I never want to, I just want to make sure that whatever program we put together um, to help those athletes reach their goals is in synergy with their other other life obligations, whether that be work or family or, you know, yeah. whatever else they have going on. This is so, this has been so interesting to me through this podcast, talking with a lot of you guys, you know, you, you high-end athletes um, who also kind of function as, as coaches here. You know, you've taken this, this backlog of experience um, and, and you're applying it to help other people. It's so strange for me because I grew up racing primarily in the 80s and 90s and um, a, the majority of my training was through books and then just going out and, you know, probably cranking out junk miles and stuff like that. But, um, and, and I've never really had that benefit of somebody who's constantly, you can constantly check in with. Um, but it seems like it's so much more, not more, not necessarily prevalent, but there's so many people using coaches to some ex- extent. Um, is there a specific type of rider you work? I mean, what are the goals you, the riders you tend to work with? Are these, pe- are these people who are trying to obtain some sort of um, a racing career or they just want to beat their friends on the weekend or do they want to do a Fondo or something like that? Um, well, it varies greatly, yeah. of course. Um, I have some some athletes who just want accountability. Really? They just want somebody to tell them what to do and that they have to report back that they did it. Like, <laughs> and you know what? Like, it's amazing. If you, if you are just consistent in your riding and in your training, you will get faster and you will feel stronger on your bike. Um, and then when you go out with your friends on the weekends, you're going to have more fun, right? Cause yeah. you are going to be suffering. So I have, I have those clients. I have clients who, um, want to cat up. They want to move from a cat four to a cat three and cycle cross. I have um, a young athlete who uh, is just in in his development phase. He has so much potential, and it's really about how do I guide him through um, the process of doing enough, not too much, so that he can be racing um, Cat One in the next year or so. Oh. Um, so it's a, it's such a wide variety. I work mostly with adults who aren't looking to make cycling a career, but just something that they really love and they want to be better at it. Um, beating their friends on the weekends is, is always a plus, um, (laughs) participating in the state championship races, um, you know, like getting on the podium at our largest cycle cross series, which is called cross crusade here in Oregon, that sort of thing. So really, it's really a, a, a wide variety. Is there something, especially when it comes to cyclocross, and this might be completely personal and biased and slanted because um, <laughs> here here I, I, I race road, I race mountain, all this kind of stuff. But for some reason, when it comes time season for, for cyclocross, I'm the guy that gets lapped. There's a running joke around here that you slap Pat in the ass when you lap it because I'm going so dang slow and stuff like that. But is there are there pretty consistent 
situations or mistakes that some people make when it comes to preparation for something like cross? Um, yes, <laughs> there are. Um, when you look at what's required in a cross race, it's so different than any other race. Um, skills are a huge piece of that. So dedicating a day or two days every week where you're, you're incorporating skills work into your, your ride. Um, that's very important. Being able to run off the bike and then jump back on full gas, very important. Um, you know, I think it's such a short race. I don't know what your race lengths are, probably 45 minutes. Oh yeah. Um, that you need to be sprinting out of every single corner and how many corners are there on a, on a, in a lap and how many laps are you doing and being able to recover from that. And there's no other discipline that requires that. Um, so I think there are a lot of mistakes in it. You look at a cross race and you say, okay, it's a 45 minute race. And this is the, this is the average effort required, but there's no, there's no average effort in a cross race. It's full gas or, or cornering or dismounting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I also think that a lot of the, the cross season ha- is quite long. It actually got sh- a little shorter domestically this year, moving nationals back to December. But it's really long, and people want to be fit and ready at the first race, which is the middle of August or the beginning of September, and they don't plan their season out well. Yeah. And you can't be at your fastest September, October, November, December. You have to pick which races are most important to you and then periodize, periodize your training around that. Um, it's easy to be pretty fast all the time. It's really hard to be really fast all the time. So you have to sacrifice some races where you're not going to be as fast to be able to go real fast at the races that are most important to you. Okay. Oh, crap. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, no, I'm no. just kind of moving on with with things like this in your in your career. And when we were with recent, when I recently got to meet you the other day, we talked a lot about Bend. We talked a lot about the beauty that Bend offers in terms of, you know, the cycling community and and things like that. Um, tell me about some of the other uh, favorites you have. Are there favorite races that you just look forward to every year, and the ones that you've just put down in the calendar, like, oh my God, that was one of the most epic things I've ever done. <laughs> well, High Cascade 100, which is a race here in Bend, Oregon. It was just uh, a week and a half ago. I didn't participate this year, but I think I've done the race five times. It's a hundred mile mountain bike race. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Excuse me. Um, In that you get to ride all the iconic trails in one day. So for your listeners who are looking for an excuse to come to Bend and really get um, (laughs) a full full 360 degree view of what our trails have to offer, the High Cascade is, is a really great race. And I think one of the reasons that I got into endurance racing in the beginning, um, other races that are just, that I love, um, the whiskey 50 down in Prescott, Arizona, part of the Epic ride series is one that I've done a number of times and the race is great, but the community that comes out to support the race is even better. Um, and some of my, the best friends that I've made in the cycling community, I have been able to meet and spend time with there during that weekend. Um, what other races? I have some. I'm, I'm partial to some of the the races on the east, the cyclocross races on the east coast, yeah. um, just because I've had nice experiences <laughs> experiences <laughs> there. And then uh, I have to just plug Oregon's um, largest cycle. It's actually the largest cyclocross series in the nation. It's called Cross Crusade. This year is our 20th anniversary. 
Wow. So it's a series of eight races across the state, um, and it is incredibly competitive and fun. I think um, they'll plan on having 1,500 racers on the first weekend, wow. uh, which um, wow. is always great to see people at every level coming out, yeah. coming out to race. Um, you talked about gravel racing, and obviously Cross is doing incredibly well. Um, are those the areas you see the sport in terms of growth going? Um, road racing's having a hell of a time, in my personal opinion, in terms of yeah. um, restrictions, um, in terms of litigation and things like that. And the numbers seem to not be doing extremely well. Um, where do you see the sport headed? I think people are trending towards disciplines where they can have a bit of adventure. Um, so gravel racing obviously is growing leaps and bounds. Um, if you look at the growth trajectory of dirty Kansas over the last few years, like it's absolutely insane. And that race is 206 miles. Like who actually wants to race their bike 206 miles, (laughs) but, um, you know, mountain bike racing, um, in this country is growing as well. It's strong. Um, and cross, but if you look at gravel racing and you look at cycle cross and one of the things they have in common other than the bike is the community, the social community. And that I think is huge. People crave being part of something bigger than themselves. So whether it's your team who sets up a tent or in gravel racing, it's just like, yeah, there are some people racing at the front, but so often it's, it's just having fun with your friends or the, the race is in a location where everybody camps. Yeah. And so it's a, it's kind of a, it's a weekend affair where you have a captive audience and you hang out and everybody's there for the same reason. So, um, you know, I, I train on the road, I do some road races, but I find that the, one of the reasons that I love riding my bike is because I love being outside yeah. and I get a lot more out of being on dirt and, and trails and less traveled road, which often are gravel than being on on the side of the road or in a narrow bike lane with cars passing me. And so from a pure enjoyment standpoint, um, I think a lot of people are moving away from the road because they get more out of being on the dirt or on mixed surface terrain. Well, and I've said many times on this show, you you know, if you're a new cyclist, you sign up for a crit, you don't realize that it's absolutely you know, incredibly fast, you get dropped. Next thing you know, an official kicks you out of the race and you paid full entry fee and you got dropped and lapped and your race was over. You do a road race, you get dropped because you're not fit enough. You're learning the sport or you don't know the tactics and your race is over. Um, at least in, in mountain biking and, uh, the gravel racing and where it's going, it's still you against the course or it's still you against the person in front of you. And I think that's also where we seem to be going. I would totally agree with you. Um, and with cross, like you said, I always get yeah. lapped, but you know yeah. what? No one knows you got lapped. You no. still are going out there and doing your race and having a blast. Yeah. It doesn't oh, matter. Yeah. I think it's um, hilarious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that inclusivity, like, like you said, if you're doing a road race and you get dropped, like not only do you get kicked off the course by the official, but it just sucks to be back there by yourself. Yeah. Um, and in a mountain bike race and in cross, like those barriers to entry, are removed because you can just go out and ride your bike as fast as you can. Um, so yeah, yeah, the inclusivity for sure is a huge piece of it. 
Right on. Okay. Well, um, Serena, first of all, I want to thank you for your time. And second of all, I do want to ask you, where can people find you, follow you, stalk you, or something like that in terms of uh, what, you know, in terms of your coaching, in terms of uh, your career and things like that? I found your website, but you might want to plug it. Um, So my website is just serenabishopgordon.com. I try to keep it updated, but it's not always current. Um, And I'm most active um, regarding social media on Instagram. I'm Serena BG. on Instagram and I'm on Facebook as well. You can find me there. Um, and then I coach for a company called Velocious Cycling Adventures. You can find them um, at VelociousCyclingAdventures.com. We not only uh, have a number of very amazing coaches on staff, but we also um, run some really great training camps um, throughout the year. So check yeah. those out as well. Oh man, I, I first of all I love the name of that company. I thought it was pretty pretty witty and second of all I saw some of the camps which looked awesome too. So Yeah, you uh, should come. You should come to Mallorca. Oh god. You know what? There are so many things that happen there and it looks like one of the most beautiful places in the world to ride, but I'm a podcaster and we don't make money. Well, you could come do a podcast. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, trade. <laughs> Well, Serena, again, thanks for your time. Thanks for living, limping through me and trying to figure out how, what the hell I did wrong with Skype and all those sort of stuff. And um, I, I, it was great riding with you and you live in a beautiful place and you're going really fast. <laughs> well, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I appreciate it. Hope to have you guys back down here uh, before too long. Absolutely. Okay. So there you are, Serena, and all of her her styles and all of her expertise, and I think she lives in a really cool place, you guys, and she is not afraid to let you know. Uh, Came to the sport late, I guess we would say late, but boy, is she taking advantage of what time she's been involved and and what she can do on a bike. Um, Great person, and that was a lot of fun talking to her. So, you guys... If maybe even by the time you're listening to this show, if you ordered one of the beer pack filler kits, you know what I'm talking about. Remember the old generic beer from the, I think it was, Christ, I think it was the Jimmy Carter days. That's how old I am. They had the just the white can with just the label across the front that said beer. That's what this pack filler kit is, is labeled after. And our friends at Castelli, Eric Solberg, helped us out, got us set up. Um, we took a while to get the, the kit together, but I, it is finally arriving. I think it's if you ordered it, it will be in your mailbox, hopefully by the time you are listening to this podcast. Take a photo of yourself in the kit. Send it to us. Please, you know, please have shorts on too because I don't, I, we're not that kind of show. But, uh, you know, sh- show your pack fill of pride and, and we'll go from there. And if you're interested, I do have people asking me about the kits and when they're available. We will open up the store here again soon. Um, I know custom kits sometimes take a while, and here we are towards the tail end of summer, and we want to make sure that we get an, our next order in early enough so people can get their stuff in time, and we'll, we'll do that again. We have the green, we have the pink, and we have the beer. The, all three kits will maybe put up at different times because you got to hit minimums when you've got prices this low. Um, Castelli has, has been so great to give us such an incredible price on their kits. So uh, so we'll, we'll put those up again, and, and we'll go from there. All right? All right. You guys keep uh, sending me info. Keep stalking me on Twitter, on Instagram, and all those sorts of things. As I said, Spokane Midnight Century is happening here in a couple days from where I'm recording this. I'm going to attempt it once again. Last time I did was the year before we when we were training for Leadville. 
uh, great ride, and it's you know it's 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 gravel riding before gravel was popular here in Spokane. So if you think you started gravel riding, screw you. I'm pretty sure the guys who created the Spokane Midnight Century did it here. I guess that's it, you guys. More to come. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.